Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. J.R.R. Tolkien's great epic, The Lord of the Rings, that trilogy and the movies related to it, continue to be one of the most popular works of fiction in the English language. And they have been that way for uh, decades now. And the interesting thing is that when you look at that story, you will see some things that may sound familiar. As the story opens, you see that Middle-earth is suffering. The powers of darkness are active and spreading. Leaders have been corrupted and their people suffer as a result. In the ancient kingdom of Gondor, where the king has been absent for generations, the steward who was responsible comes out and says, Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king. That is, we're doing just fine without one. Yet in all the lands of Middle-earth, there is longing. There is a longing for a day where justice and righteousness will prevail, when there is a return of truth and goodness and beauty and kindness. And this longing pervades the whole story. And finally, when you get to the last book of the story, which is entitled The Return of the King, the story is recounted of the rightful king who comes back. He is restored to his throne, vanquishing the powers of darkness and evil and all those who have chosen to follow them and restoring justice and peace and joy for those who have longed for his return. Now, you might ask yourself, where did Tolkien get the idea for this story? And I don't want to exactly accuse Tolkien of being a plagiarist, but I would suggest to you that this is the story of the gospel. It is the story of the salvation that we see traced through the scriptures and revealed fully today in Christ the King. Today is Christ the King Sunday, the day that is the last Sunday of the church year where we celebrate Christ on his glorious throne uh, bringing all things into submission and restoring order and justice and truth and goodness. And it is the last Sunday before we embark into that season of Advent, that season of hope and expectation as we hear again God's promise of salvation. So the context for the gospel lesson that we have today, this parable of the sheep and the goats, is part of the same Olivet Discourse that we've been focusing on over the last several weeks. Uh, you will remember that this is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and it is that time where Jesus is sitting with his disciples a couple of days before the Last Supper and his crucifixion, and he is recounting to them parable after parable after parable, one after another with no analysis. So we first heard about the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. We heard the parable of the talents last week from Justin, and here this week the parable of the sheep and the goats. And these are all related to what went before in Matthew 24, which is the warning when Jesus says, no one knows when the Son of Man will return, therefore be ready, be prepared, watch. 
And one of the things that's interesting when you look at the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats is there are certain messages that they all have in common. One of the things that they do is they all make the same point that there will be a judgment at the last day. That judgment will involve a separation and there will be a door that will be shut to some while others enter into the kingdom of heaven. But these parables in Matthew 25 help show us how to be prepared for that day. And the first thing is that we must be known to the bridegroom. We must be in relationship with the bridegroom. We need to be prepared and watchful, expectant. We need to be good stewards of what has been given to us. We need to be about our master's business, not just our own comfort. And today, the focus is on we need to be compassionate toward the brethren and the least of these, living lives that focus on the great commandment that we had four Sundays ago, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These parables all reflect those priorities, not focusing on ourselves and our own comfort. And today where our passage ends with the righteous shall go to eternal life, the very next verse says this, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that is all these parables, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So these are some of the last things Jesus is saying to his disciples. And that means we should pay extra attention to them because Jesus knew he was getting ready to go to the cross. So this morning I would like for us to look at three things that are the key points out of today's parable. The first is the sure hope of a righteous king, Christ, who will return in glory to establish his kingdom forever. Secondly, the fact that Christ will judge all the nations of the world and will separate them. And thirdly, that all will either be with him eternally in the joy of his kingdom or they will be separated from him forever. So first, the sure hope of a righteous king, Christ, who will return in glory to establish his kingdom forever. This is a great reminder that if you are a Christian, you are a citizen of two kingdoms. You are a citizen of this United States, but you are also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if you are in a kingdom, then you owe your allegiance to the king. And in this kingdom, Jesus is the king who is on his throne, his glorious throne, who will judge all justly. When we live in a time where it seems sometimes there is a famine of justice, the idea of having a king who will judge justly is a wonderful hope. His throne is glorious according to the scriptures. And Jesus in today's parable in the opening lines deliberately echoes one of the most famous prophecies of the Old Testament in Daniel 7, talking about the Messiah. 
And in Daniel 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And yet, this kingdom glorious and beautiful and full of power and majesty and all of that is also at the same time what you might call an upside down kingdom because the one sitting on the throne, the son of man who was given all authority and dominion by the ancient of days is the one who was crucified. Never in the history of the world has there been someone crucified who became the king this one who died on the cross, that the whole world might come within the reach of his saving embrace, is the one that sits on this throne. Paul reminds us of this, of this in that great section of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an amazing thing that the one who humbled himself to death on the cross becomes the one to whom every knee shall bow. Bishop J.C. Rao reflects on this saying, let us mark in the first place who will be the judge on that last day. That same Jesus who was born in the manger of Bethlehem and took upon him the form of a servant who was despised and rejected of men and often had nowhere to lay his head, who was condemned by the princes of this world, beaten, scourged, and nailed to the cross, that same Jesus shall himself judge the world when he comes in his glory. To him the Father has committed all judgment to him, at last, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Let believers think of this and take comfort. He that sits upon the throne in that great and dreadful day will be their savior, their shepherd, their high priest, their elder brother, their friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. So we have this beautiful hope that is a sure hope of a just and righteous king who is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The second thing this parable tells us is that this king will judge all the nations of the world, both Jew and Gentile, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will separate them looking at whether they knew him and lived out that faith in him. 
Now we have to read this vision of final judgment in the context of all that Jesus has taught before and all that we see through the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels, the cry of good news resonates, good news of abounding mercy from heaven that serves to overwhelm doubt and despair. The interesting thing about it, though, is that there's some bad news first. And the bad news is that we actually are all goats. It's not a compliment to be called a goat. But what the scriptures teach us is that in our natural state, we are all goats. Romans says this, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And what that tells us is that when we repent and believe the good news of the gospel, we are transformed, we are a new creation, and we are shifted from being goats who are only about ourselves to being sheep who are seeking to follow the good shepherd. And as we become sheep, we begin to love the things of the shepherd's kingdom, and we want to do the things that please him. So Paul writes further, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The way that he is calling the sheep and the goats to live is the way that is expressed in that great commandment, to love God first with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and right after that, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are not to embrace what we see in our culture today of rampant narcissism, that thinking everything is just about our own comfort, our own prosperity, our own not being bothered with all the troubles of the world, and just dismissing all of those people out there who are suffering because they probably deserve it. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we see here in this passage is that we are to love others. We are to be proactive in loving others. It reminds me a little bit about what Jeff was saying last week to someone, that part of the role of the preacher and the scriptures is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. We must not be characterized by seeking our own comfort. We must be characterized instead by love and compassion. Remember that Jesus, when he was reading from Isaiah in the synagogue on that first public proclamation of his ministry, he chooses the section from Isaiah that says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, those in prison. We have been blessed in order that we might be a blessing. The great Presbyterian preacher Tim Keller says this way, what is important to note in this passage is that those who relieved the suffering did it unto Christ. It was their love for him that drove them to mercy and justice. It wasn't just to do good 
or we might say if we're in school, to earn more service hours. It was all for Christ. Their eyes were on him and him alone and serving the vulnerable. When we asked the Lord, when did we see you thirsty, naked, and captive? The deepest answer is on the cross. There we see how far God was willing to go to identify with the oppressed and helpless of this world. Jesus, who deserved acquittal and freedom, instead got condemnation and death. So that we, who deserve condemnation and death, might get acquittal and freedom. In that section at the end of Colossians where St. Paul urges the church to bear one another's burdens, he goes on to say this, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that also he shall reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, part of the reason that this is important is that we live in a culture that tells us to look out for number one, that what we want is the most important thing. But one of the things that the scriptures tells us, tell us and that we receive over and over again um, in our hearts when we are obedient is that true joy comes from serving God and serving others. It is not about our ease. The theologian Kent Hughes says this, no one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of total ease. If your Christianity has not brought some discomfort to your life, something is wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people, the discomfort of giving until it hurts, the discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and his church, the discomfort of a life out of step with modern culture, the discomfort of being disliked, the occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ rewards far outvalue anything lost by following him. Now you may say, well, what about good works just in themselves? Is Jesus saying that if we do enough good works, we can somehow earn our way to heaven? No. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Jesus' first command to the disciples when he calls them is, follow me. And if we follow Jesus, we will follow him into those places that are uncomfortable where he spent his time, ministering to the vulnerable and the weak the poor and the needy, the thirsty and the homeless. And the interesting thing about this is this is one of the most radical aspects of Jesus' teaching. And I would commend to you a recent book by the secular historian Tom Holland, which is called Dominion. And in that book, Holland says 
that in the Western world, when we look for the source of the idea that we should stand up for the powerless, that we should minister to the weak and the vulnerable, that we should take care of the poor, that that is a concept that you cannot find in any ancient pagan culture. And it is only with the introduction of Jesus and the gospel that that begins to take hold in the Western world. No other pagan civilization or culture ever had those values. And it is still Christians who are in the forefront of things like water mission and ministry to the homeless, ministry to the weak and the vulnerable. And that is part of what makes us like Jesus when we follow in those footsteps. And then last but not least, the third point of this parable is that all, all people will either be with Jesus eternally in the joy of his kingdom, or they will be separated from him forever. We are right on the cusp of Advent, and one of the great readings that we will eventually get to as we get through Advent is that great prologue to St. John's Gospel. And in that prologue, John uses the images of darkness and light and says that Jesus is the light who has come into the world that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has been unable to quench it. But John goes on in chapter 3 to say, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Commenting on this verse in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says, we are therefore at liberty to think that a bad man's perdition is not only a sentence imposed on him, but also the mere fact of being what he is. For Lewis, the essence of hell can be seen in what the goats are, which is evidenced by what they do not do. They have lived totally for themselves, not for others, thus not for God, and thus do not know Jesus. Anyone who is totally self-centered and self-satisfied cannot seek forgiveness or recognize the need for forgiveness, cannot love or see the need for relationships with others, including God. And this utter self-centeredness, this utter selfishness leads God to say to those people, thy will be done, and they go to be eternally separated from him. But the great good news for us today, here in 2023, is that we still live in the now but not yet. The king has come and the king is on his throne, but the door has not yet been shut. Advent is all about the light entering the world and the gracious invitation that is still open to all to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light and enter into that kingdom of light following Jesus, our good and gracious King. Jesus will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and the righteous will go into eternal life. Or as in the parable of the virgins, they will go with the bridegroom into that great and beautiful marriage feast, or in the parable of the talents, enter into the joy of your master. May we always live into the truth that it is in Christ, our crucified King, in Christ alone, 
Our hope is found, Christ, who is the true and only King. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for your love and grace that you showed in becoming one of us, entering into this world and stretching out your arms on the hard wood of the cross as you died for our sins, that all the world might come within the reach of your saving embrace. Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you, to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to minister in your name, that the light of Christ might draw all the world to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.